The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. Now, Katie, we've had a few cabinet changes today. Talk us through what's happened. So two major ones. I mean, ultimately, it's still the case, as uh, we write in the magazine this week, that the plan for a wide, a big reshuffle, mm. a big pre-election reshuffle, that has been shelved. It may happen after the party conference, the idea being they didn't want to have what tends to happen with reshuffles, which is lots of very angry people, um, because they've really been sacked. Or actually, sometimes actually worse than being sacked, feeling like you're missing out on your chance of greatness, um, which is often how Tory MP- MPs feel after reshuffles. So the more expansive one has been put off, we don't think indefinitely, but no firm date exactly. And instead, what we've had today is ultimately doing what they had to do, mm. which is uh, replacing Ben Wallace because he had made quite clear that he uh, wanted to go to the back benches before quitting as an MP at the next election. And uh, they've announced Grant Shapps, a very seasoned minister, to be the new Secretary of State for Defence. And then to replace the vacancy that Grant Shapps left as Energy Secretary, we have Claire Catino, who is the first of the 2019 intake to make Cabinet. And um, I think that's probably, in some ways, the more eye-catching of the promotions because it is is a big jump in terms of going from a fairly junior minister in the Department for Education to Secretary of State and being around the cabinet table. And then in her place, because she has been moved up, you now have David Johnson, um, who was a PPS to Michael Gove, who is now taking on Claire Catino's role in the Department of Education. And Fraser, the defence role really, I think, came back into prominence last year with the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, ben Wallace was seen as doing a, a really good job there. Talk us through what you think of Grant Shapps' appointment to that role there. It's the fifth one he's had in a year. Well, Grant Shapps, he's a sort of, you know, the joke is Minister for the Today programme. If Rishi next government is in trouble, then we can expect Grant Shapps to be wheeled out. The role of Defence Secretary uh, typically isn't particularly important in British governments because when things get serious, the Prime Minister will make the major decisions. Ben Wallace did change that. He was able to use his, not just his um, role, but also his experience. He's a former Scots Guard officer, way, way better knowledge of the military than most people to do that job. He spotted the um, Ukraine debacle coming before it did. He was talking about Russia's threat. He wrote a long article about this before the invasion and was responsible for persuading Boris Johnson to up the supply of lethal aid to Ukraine. So he is a rare example of a defence secretary who really did maximise the importance of that position. But I think that is more down to how well he used it when the position itself. But Defence Secretary now will mainly be uh, involved in budget talks. Um, Remember, Ben Wallace wasn't particularly keen on accepting too many cuts. He wanted a significant expansion, and he was beginning to get a little bit annoying um, to the Treasury in that regard. I imagine Grant Shapps will be less annoying when it comes to pushing for um, Britain to have military spending above the 2%. If you look at the the NATO membership now, Britain used to be at the top or second top after America. Now we're 
being overtaken by lots of other countries, including Poland and other Eastern European countries. So there is a case for Britain to increase its health, its, its defence spending. Ben Wallace was making that case. I suspect Grant Shapps won't be. But he will be there blowing kisses and sending aid to the Ukrainian troops. And in general, just talking about this new defence alliance, which is de facto taking place of the more hawkish countries, Britain, the Baltic states, Poland, and in the Far East also you've got the countries who are basically more hawkish in Taiwan. Liz Trust spoke about an excess of freedom. And I think while that phrase has been dropped, the principle still remains. So there'll be an aspect of diplomatic work to Grand Shapps' job. But mainly I think he will be the government fireman being wheeled out to douse the flames any time anything significant goes wrong. And Katie, I mean, you've written before about how on defence in Ukraine is one of the few areas, I think the only area where the Conservatives have a lead over Labour. What do you and that's think? also only some polls, but, yeah. but if they do get a poll which has a lead on something, it is that that's the thing. <laughs> so is this going to be then a key part of some number 10 strategy in the year ahead? Obviously, he's known as a great communicator with the government. Can we expect him to try and make defence an issue ahead of the next election? Yes. I mean, I think the main reason Grant Shapps was picked is the fact that they do think he can hold the line on spending. So I think that is probably, if we're trying to work out why Grant Shapps has the role, I think that is front and centre because they were worried about, you know, for example, Penny Morden. That was a name that was doing the round. Someone who I think would have been a more eye-catching defence secretary Mm. um, and probably landed better with uh, the Tory base, the grassroots. Perhaps... I mean, I don't think Grant Shapps is a particularly divisive choice, but just speaking to MPs um, so far and you know, some in government, I think it's just a sense people think it's a very safe choice. You know, mm. it's not particularly inspiring as is so far the takeaway. Um, but I think the concern was about perhaps going for one of those more... Um, I don't want to be rude to Grant Shapps here, but I'm going to say charismatic. <laughs> so I'm thinking Tom Tegenhart, Penny Morden, those type of characters, is that they might have plans of their own about what should happen to the Defence Department that would be uh, less satisfactory to the Treasury and to Number 10 when it comes to the discipline, because there's two challenges. One is, of course, the immediate issue in terms of the fact that actually a lot of uh, you know the equipment the weapons that the UK is meant to have, we don't have, which is down to a few reasons. One is a lot of that has been sent to Ukraine. So how do you replenish? Mm. What are, you know, there are tricky decisions on that coming. And then, of course, what is the message at the next election when it comes to the defence budget? Because if you think back to the Tory leadership contest, the summer one we're going to go with, there are, there are more uh, pledges in that one. Ultimately, Rishi Sunak would not commit to what Liz Truss said, which is 3% of defence spending GDP. Um, he's now said 25 in the long run. And therefore, having a you know someone who's going to hold the line I think Grant Shapps is seen as that type of person I think why it's perhaps Grant Shapps and not John Glenn you know Jeremy Quinn once we get into like the the various I think candidates who would have held the line is that he is seen as a very safe communicator as you say I still think it's big shoes for Grant Shapps to fill just because Mm. Ben Wallace was someone who was always at the top of that Conhome league table and has already made defence a thing if you you think about those points that you just said in terms of where it is so uh, I think they'll be hoping he can continue with that and you know ultimately make it so the government does not feel as though it's heavily missing having Ben Wallace there. I think we're all agreed that, you know, Grant Shapps was a pretty um, safe choice. But I think the more catching one is Claire Coutinho. Katie, tell us about her. She's one of the few ministers in post-war history now who's got to the cabinet by the time she was 40. 
Yes, and she is the first of the 2019 intake, as I said, to be uh, promoted to cabinet. It's a pretty fast promotion, if you think about, uh, you know, the role she's come from. Yet, I don't think it's particularly surprising. I think there is some surprise that she has gone straight to cabinet as opposed to a role like Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Right. But everyone knew she was going to get a big promotion because she is known as, uh, I think, probably the ultimate Sunak loyalist. Mm. Which is um, bad, right? Yes, she was his spad when he was in the Treasury. She was then his PPS um, when she became an MP. And if you think about the leadership campaign, played a central role in that. So in terms of people Rishi Sunak trusts who are MPs, that person is very high on that list and they have a very close relationship, which I think then reflects, of course, about the importance they're staking on that department because the energy department, if you think about the story of the summer that won't go away, it's, it's net zero both for Labour and the Tories. Mm. And that is, uh, you know, lots of decisions coming up the track, which are potentially you know, divisive, even internally within the Tory party. And um, Claire Gattina also worked as a SPAD in the Whip's office previously. So she does at least have some uh, knowledge of how you balance the various Tory tribes along with that. I think her seat is a Surrey seat, so it's a Southern seat. And therefore, you know, I think the next question when you start to think about policy is, you know, is this someone who is anti-net zero, pro-net zero? I mean, she was a, a member of the Conservative Environment Network before she uh, entered government, uh, which suggests, you know, she's not someone who is anti-net zero in that sense. But she also is, uh, you know, quite treasury-minded mm. and therefore be very aware of the trade-offs if you think about, you know, the cost of all these pledges. But I think that, you know, probably a pragmatic person. I don't think we can read too much yet in terms of what that means for the environment agenda. But I think that they'll see her as, you know, women in her 30s who they think is good on the media, who can probably try and appeal to both sides on it will be will be what they're thinking as for her politics she's a brexiteer she's you know former banker and she worked at the csj oh you know did things for the csj before she entered parliament so i think she is a, you know quite true blue in many ways and Fraser, I mean, that's a fascinating point that Katie raises there, the importance of energy and net zero in the coming year at a time when we know the Tory party is quite divided about these questions. Yes, but I see her more as being Sunakite on these issues. I don't think she is a, thinks net zero is a, a, a con, but she would absolutely be thinking, well, let's try to make it work economically. Let's be honest about the cost. Remember, she, you know, this is somebody who worked for Rishi Sunak as a SPAD, then as a PPS. I remember in his leadership campaign, there were in the last sort of 10 days, there were only about four people backing Sunak who were willing to go out on the radio and still defend him when it was clear to everybody he was going to to lose. The polls then suggested it was quite a large margin. And she was one of them. So she is an uber loyalist who knows Rishi Sunak inside out, somebody who will have his complete trust. Now, previously, it was said that Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, was Sunak's closest friend in politics. I think Cortino might now be taking that crown. I think in the cabinet, she will pre- be the person closest to him politically. So when you, when you want to think about what does she think about tax cuts, what does she think about net zero, I struggle to think of many areas where she would significantly differ from Sunak. I mean, like him, she is a financier who came into politics, who walked away from what would otherwise have been a very lucrative job in the city. In politics for the right reasons, she used to work for the Centre for Social Justice, so she is um, very socially minded conservative. And I, I think she is, um, to be honest, I think she's a more interesting story here than Grant Shapps. Um, everybody, I mean, Shapps has been in front bench jobs pretty much for the last 16 years. 
Cortina is new, she hasn't got much profile, and if I was Rishi Sunak and I wanted to add new energy to my cabinet, she is exactly the appointment I would uh, make. Also, I should say that David Johnson, um, who, who sees her as schools minister, he is, a, again, an MP of pretty high calibre. I think it's been weird how he hasn't been given a government job for so long. He used to work for the Social Mobility Foundation, in which I was involved in. And, and I remember when he left the SMF and became a Tory MP, they were all sort of shocked. David, we never knew you were right wing. You've spent all this time talking about the poor and the disadvantaged. And of course, to me, that was why one would join the Conservative Party, and that's the way he saw it as well. So I think both Claire Coutinho and David Johnson are politicians of stature and substance who will make an improvement to the calibre of government. And I suspect we'll be seeing and hearing a lot more of Claire Coutinho in the next months ahead. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.